You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. This is Hunter Keegan, and today I am joined by a guest named Sarah Felix. Sarah is a former student athlete who went to Penn State University, my alma mater as well, and she wanted to share her story about living with bipolar as a student athlete and now as a mother and how her symptoms progressed over the years, um, various anecdotes about her life that are related to living with mental illness and things like that. So it was a great conversation and I hope you all enjoy it. One quick thing, though, this episode does contain discussion about suicide, so if that is something that is uncomfortable for you, you may want to skip this one. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan, and today I am joined by Sarah. Sarah, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm super excited for this. Yeah, I'm excited too. I know we had been trying to get you on for a couple of weeks, and I'm glad it finally came together. So I always like to start by asking some really basic background questions. And the first question is, what is your formal diagnosis? So my formal diagnosis is um, rapid cycling bipolar disorder type 1 with mixed features. Um, I was misdiagnosed at 17 with anxiety, though. Okay. Um, So do you want to talk about what the rapid cycling component of that means? Because some people might not be familiar with that type of um, category. Yeah, absolutely. So rapid cycling means you have four or more episodes of either mania or depression within a year span. Um, so if you have more than um, like, you know, two depressive episodes and three manic episodes, just for instance, that would be considered rapid cycling. That absolutely nails it. Um, I was just going through the DSM-5 the other day, and I think you got that pretty much word for word. So congratulations. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, how old were you when you were formally diagnosed? Because I know you said you were misdiagnosed when you were 17. When did the proper diagnosis come about? So I was actually properly diagnosed um, at 19. And that's been sticking with me for the last uh, six years. So we finally got it right. But I was lucky enough to get it somewhat early into adulthood, my formal diagnosis. Yeah. And you know, that like 19 to 21 year old age range is kind of when bipolar starts really manifesting for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, that's when those symptoms start coming into play. Um, what, what brought about that diagnosis? What was going on that brought you back into therapy or with seeing a psychiatrist? So can I kind of go way to the beginning? Cause it's kind of a trailing long sure. a list of events. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go back to the very beginning. Okay. Awesome. Um, so in high school, I was a pretty mellow kid, um, super mellow, easygoing. I didn't like conflict. I would just, if I was, um, given conflict, I would just go cry in a corner. I was super easygoing. Um, but around 16, 15, 16, um, kind of noticing symptoms looking back that were major red flags. For instance, I would get like super sad and irritable periods of time. So that was kind of the depression kicking in. And then around 16 was the extreme bouts of energy of pulling all-nighters, doing school, or just super excited. Um, and then one summer, for some reason, still don't know to this day why, I really wanted to graduate high school early, and I thought I could finish an entire school year over a summer, and I would stay up all night, uh, really hyper-focused, and I finished my junior year of high school within about a five-week span of time. That's so impressive. 
it it was and that's what everyone describes it as but impressive but concerning at the same time right yeah and I'm like looking back I was like why was that never you know noticed like by the adults like maybe a little too impressive or you know wow you know something was not right so did people did people okay. think of you as just kind of like being an overachiever or something like that yeah that's what everyone described me as they're like oh you're super motivated you have such a strong work ethic that's really going to help you in college and in your career and at that time I was like oh wow that's that's awesome you know I'm going to keep doing that but I didn't realize no that's not being impressive that's mental illness <laughs> so yeah well, there's, then, a, there's a lot of ways it can manifest, right? And sometimes mania or hypomania can start off as being really, really productive because you're getting so much done, you've got so much energy, et cetera, et cetera. But then it kind of comes crashing down, right? Yeah. And the thing is, mine didn't come crashing down immediately. It didn't until I hit about 18, like just 18, almost 19. So when I did my... Um, you know, summer finishing my junior year within five weeks, five, six weeks. I then had my senior year. And again, it was like the bouts of depression kind of came up, but also that super motivated studying for the SATs over like a week's time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that kind of thing. But again, it wasn't too obvious because it wasn't disrupting, quote unquote, my life yet. So no one really thought this was an issue. So I went to college three weeks after I turned 17, which looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I was a child. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's really young. Yeah. And I lived in Texas pretty much all my life. So I went to Penn state across the country. Nice. Um, Yeah. And it was, it was a different experience. So, and then my freshman year, I was super stressed out all the time. And again, having those depressive moments and then having moments where, oh, I can stay up all night and study. Again, it was the same kind of thing, but now it took it up next level. So my first instance uh, was in freshman year, friend's dorm. We were just sitting watching a movie with a bunch of friends. And it lasted to like 1 a.m. just watching Frozen out of all movies. This is way (laughs) back in 2013. And then everyone was like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I, you know, I need to go to bed. Like the people at the dorm were like, we're just going to bed. Mm -hmm. I thought, no, this is a good time to work out. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, wearing like just normal like boots that you would wear to class in leggings and a jacket decided I'm going to run a full circle around campus a couple of times. Yeah. At 2 a.m. And Penn State is a very big campus. So very much you're not talking like a quick 15 minute run I mean that's going to take you a while right yeah about two and a half hours <laughs> yeah yeah that's Especially an intense run I started oh yep so like I started in Pollock Halls I know you went to Penn State yes I, I did go to Penn State as well I'm super familiar I also started in Pollock Halls in the uh, Beaver dorm actually that's where I started running out of Beaver there Dorm. You go. Yeah. Yep. So I went from Beaver Hall all the way up to the stadium, um, down that road. I forgot what it's called, but you've passed like the art museum. Anyway, mm-hmm. very long, long run there at 2 a.m. wearing winter boots. Yeah. Again, how how cold flag. was it? Freezing. It yeah. was... I think, I don't think we hit like super cold yet because this is like mid fall semester, Mm -hmm. but it was like 30s at least. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a red flag. Is is this a good point to mention that you were a student athlete as well? You're a very accomplished uh, fencing competitor, right? Yeah, I, I would say held my own pretty good. I, my last year, competing internationally um, was just before my freshman year. Um, I was 40th in the 19 and under category internationally when I was still in the under 16 category. So I I was okay. I was recruited to Penn State. At the time, we were the number one fencing program in the country. So yeah, I was a student athlete full-time and I was recruited to Penn State for that. 
So full-time athlete, full-time student, those are hard commitments to balance, I'm imagining. Yeah, and most people don't realize like student athletes, we're, we're like a full-time job. <laughs> yeah. it's, you got mornings, like we would have morning workouts at five o'clock in the morning. You would go to class for like your 8 a.m., go to practice at 5 p.m. till about eight and then go home and study. So it was a, it was a commitment. Right. That's a lot of stuff going on that leads to the mania. And you were also talking about still having those periods of depression. Um, you mentioned mixed features at the very beginning of the episode. Um, could you explain a little bit more about what mixed features means? Yeah. So a mixed episode or mixed feature, depending on what term you use, is the same thing. It's where you're both manic and depressive at the same time which I know does not make sense <laughs> to most people I tell people that and they're like what do you mean so the best way I describe it is still feeling depressed but you still at least this is in my instance still feeling depressed but you have the energy irritability and racing thoughts of mania mm -hmm. so, so that's the best way I describe it for myself yeah kind of like those negative aspects from both sides of the disorder occurring at once, it can be extremely, extremely disruptive um, for sure. So like you, you mentioned all these different kind of signs and symptoms in your late teens that led up to the uh, formal diagnosis. Uh, you said when you were 19, right? It was when you were right. Formally? Okay. So what was like the number one red flag for you? that led to the diagnosis or that really stands out at you when you think back to when those symptoms were originally manifesting? I think the biggest red flag was when I stayed up for nine days straight. Wow. That, yeah, that was, I think the biggest, you know, indicator of something's wrong. I, again, I wasn't really sure what was wrong, but I knew something was when and it was kind of, it was hard to explain because I would have friends around me like, oh, I stayed up, you know, so many nights, like I'm exhausted. And I'm like, oh, I've been, you know, staying up for like seven days straight. Yeah. And it was kind of brushed off. Like, no, literally I've been up for seven days straight. <laughs> yeah. Were, were you sober or were you using like quote unquote study drugs at all or anything like that too? Or was this just purely the neurological firings in your brain causing these? Um, purely neurological. I never wow. took anything in my life. Again, Advil was the extent. <laughs> <laughs> so this was pure dopamine rush, nine wow. days straight, staying up. Um, I think maybe like, I wouldn't even say sleep, but I say rested maybe two hours in that nine day period. Yeah, kind of just laying in bed and like... Yeah, just kind of watching TV. Like that was the extent of rest. <laughs> yeah. And within that nine-day period also, again, I, I also had a company at this time. I was making good money for a college student. I surpassed the six-figure mark salary-wise. Wow. wow. Yeah, so I, again super motivated that was misinterpreted <laughs> but within that nine day time I had this American Express charge card so you could basically charge up anything but you had to pay in full each month when I got that statement after this nine uh, day long manic episode I charged up twenty two thousand dollars oh my gosh that overspending is crazy it is and the thing is I didn't have a limit so it never got declined oh my god and I didn't and logically not really realizing it until I got the statement when you're kind of coming down off it. Oh, I just spent $22,000. I panicked. I, I would panic too. And overspending is another common symptom of mania. You have like so many of these classic symptoms going on, like reduced need for sleep, overspending, very goal-directed behavior. Um, things like that. So you really, you were like nailing all of those classic symptoms leading up to your diagnosis, weren't you? I was, but at the same time, I lived by myself. 
Um, I had my own little condo. It was nothing fancy. It was like a little loft condo. And I lived by myself. I would go to class, I'd go to practice, go home study. So I don't think these symptoms were really seen by others to say, hey, I noticed this. You might want to, you know, look into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then when you're manic, you're not thinking anything's wrong in that moment. Um, but what made me seek treatment or try to start seeking treatment was the depressive side. I'd notice I go from super motivated again, staying nine days up, but then having bouts of depression where I would miss class for four days or even a week at a time mm-hmm. or not go to practice. And that's like, I feel like really crappy about myself. I don't, you know, just super judgmental about myself, super irritable. That's when I decided, okay, I need to go seek something because I think I have depression. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to um, campus psychological services at the time. Which is a uh, program that Penn State offers to uh, students who have uh, mental health concerns on campus. It's called CAPS, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. I reached out to them. And when I first called them, I was like, hey, I need to be seen. Something's wrong. That's literally the words I had. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, what do you think's wrong? I was like, I think I might have depression. Again, I was diagnosed with anxiety at 17. I was like, I think maybe that's just acting up. I don't know. Um, they're like, okay, we can schedule an intake call with one of our um, intakes counselors. I'm not exactly sure. Um, that will be in about three weeks. And I was mm. like, three weeks. Um, I was like, can it be any sooner? They're like, no, it has to, you know, that's our earliest. So I was like, okay, made it the appointment. By three weeks, I was starting to feel quote unquote better. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't need to be seen. It was just a really bad week. So I didn't pick up the phone when they called. Worst mistake. But, and then a week later, started feeling depressed again, reached out again to make that appointment. And within that three-week time, again, being on the wait list, um, again, I should have picked up the phone when they first called. I did have a suicide attempt in that time. which landed me in the hospital for four days. Wow. I'm so sorry that that happened that way. No, thank you. I appreciate it. But I was lucky enough to one, be here and two, get the proper diagnosis and treatment that needed. And that changed my life for sure. It's so unfortunate when people try to reach out for help and then there's a delay or something happens and they're not able to get the services until there is like a catastrophic event that occurs like that. That's a common running theme, I think, for a lot of people in terms of how they receive their bipolar diagnosis. And I'm just so sorry that that happened to you in that way. No, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I completely agree because three weeks for a student, that's half a semester almost. Like, And then not only being like, okay, we can get you in, but waiting another two, three weeks for that appointment when someone is going through a really difficult time enough to finally reach out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. The it's 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 hard when it's it's hard to take that initial step. And then once you get that initial step, sometimes it's so delayed, you're in a worse off position. Yeah. Um, that, that unfortunately happens a lot. Did you ever ultimately end up trying some of the, uh, campus psychological treatments at the, uh, CAPS center or by that point, did you, after the, uh, suicide attempt, did you start working with like an entirely separate mental health team or how did that play out? So, yeah, so I was impatient for a couple days. Um, the next day I went to school, um, mm-hmm. and then. I did get referred to CAPS because as a student athlete, I don't know if this is still the case now. And it's kind of a privilege that looking back, I don't like (laughs) that we get unlimited psychological services through CAPS, counseling and medication management, unlimited. Hmm. So for free. 
as a student athlete, that's one of the uh, benefits? Yes. So wow. usually for like a normal student, not um, in like a student athlete um, status, they would get five counseling services and then would have to pay a copay, whatever their insurance was for medication management with a provider. Mm-hmm. For student athletes, we get unlimited counseling services and unlimited medication management appointments with no copay. Okay. So I was referred there and I did have services, psychological services uh, through counseling where I would go to therapy at first three times a week. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful. Um, but looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, three sessions a week, I would have been pretty much done if I was not a student athlete. So I definitely see a privilege in that. But um, overall, yes, it was very beneficial. And that's when I also started um, medication management with the uh, psychiatrist there. Okay, interesting. So I actually also tried to seek uh, services through CAPS when I was at Penn State, which is when my um, symptoms, especially with depression, were becoming really apparent. And I was not a student athlete, but um, I did eventually get involved with their services. And I saw a counselor there a couple of times, um, but five times for someone with uh, serious mental illness is like not enough times um, to, to be able to get proper intervention. And the other thing with the counselor who I was seeing she actually was a grad student who was still in the process of doing like, I guess, um, you know, they record their sessions on camera so they can become like assessed on them and stuff. And it was just so uncomfortable because this woman didn't really know what she was doing. She was still learning. She wasn't equipped to be handling someone with like major depressive disorder is what we thought it was at the time. And then it evolved into bipolar disorder. So my own attempts at seeking treatment there were actually really frustrating, Um, but I'm glad that they worked out for you well. And you use the word privilege, but I I don't know if I would call it a privilege. I mean, you're you're there on scholarship, you're closely involved with the university. So um, I, I don't know necessarily know if I would use the word privilege, but I'm really, really glad that you were able to get those um types of support that you needed at the time. Yeah, I, I was so sorry that happened to you. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember there were some counselors there that were grad students. And I've heard from someone um, saying that they had to like recruit more grad students there because there was such a shortage in providers. Yeah. And I think that at the time when I went, there were about nine counselors for 45,000 undergrad students. Granted, not all of them sought treatment, but statistically wise that's a lot (laughs) yeah Penn State has a population of around 45,000 students it's basically its own little city in of itself and then it's surrounded by a larger town called uh, State College Pennsylvania Um, they call the uh, they informally call the area Happy Valley which I think is kind of funny from a bipolar standpoint because it's like happy and then valley so hey that's a perfect way to look at it (laughs) (laughs) so that's um yeah that's that's a really interesting scene over there did you feel overwhelmed at all just by the sheer size of the university when you first arrived especially at the age of 17 oh yeah I was panicking (laughs) my first because I live it's huge and again I never lived uh, by myself obviously never really stepped into that kind of environment before and I lived in a dorm um over in Hamilton Halls in West mm-hmm. um I also lived in Hamilton this is getting weird really yeah oh my gosh that's so funny yeah <laughs> uh, 318 Hamilton Hall I still remember it <laughs> nice um but yeah it was a different environment and again I saw people doing all-nighters, going out partying, Mm. super energetic, sleeping in on the weekends. No one really talked about mental health, though. So I was looking at that as thinking, that's normal. That's, you know, staying up all night, doing all-nighters, partying super loud. That's normal. Mm -hmm. And for most people, it's normal. But 
from a mental health issues when I started seeing like real symptoms, I was having a hard time understanding the difference of between what's a normal college student and what's unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it, it's so hard to tell when you're in that strange, unique culture where like partying is a normal part of the day-to-day -day routine for a lot of students. And um, you, you're too young, you know, you're on your own for the first time. So you're kind of still discovering yourself and kind of learning your own personality and ways of doing things. And it's so easy for mental health symptoms to be harder to identify because of that. Right, exactly. And it took me years to really, obviously, I went to college at 17, I wasn't diagnosed till 19. It took me a few years to really understand this isn't just being super motivated. And this is not just anxiety where um, I'm just super stressed out, I'm going into deep depression. And just, it took years to figure that out. And I feel like it's not really talked about enough from other people. Again, statistically, one in five people have a diagnosable um, mental health disorder, you mm -hmm. know, whether they're formally diagnosed or not. That's the statistic of it. And that's what made it really hard to seek out help because I'm not understanding that other people are going through that, but they're not speaking about it. I didn't know the difference. That was, I wish, and this is why I'm kind of reaching out more. I wish it was talked about more so people can recognize that healthy versus unhealthy boundary between the two. Yeah, absolutely. The, those boundaries can be so nebulous sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. I know in one of your emails to me before the um, recording of this episode, you mentioned that there were some financial constraints after your first year of college, but you continued to work super hard and ultimately graduated, which is amazing. Um, I was wondering when you were talking about working like 90 to 100 hours per week while also attending university and things like that, how badly do you think that was impacting your symptoms? Oh, it was just aggravating them in every each way. It was both aggravating depressive and manic symptoms. And that's what kind of introduced the mixed features into play. Mm -hmm. um, because sleep is so important with bipolar disorder. It can affect so much. Um, if you sleep too little, it can trigger mania. If you sleep too much, it can just trigger depression. So working 90, 10, or I'm sorry, 90 to 100 hours per week, going to school, being a student athlete, running a company in between classes, it's a lot and it's a lot of stress and stress tends to trigger depression and mania for me. Mm -hmm. um, in those high levels, then not sleeping or getting so overwhelmed, you just want to sleep in one day. It was just a vicious cycle. And that's why literally rapid cycling, I would go from depressed to manic and then it would kind of drop down to like a stable level for a couple of weeks and then it would go to depression then to mania so it was mm. just this constant roller coaster how were you doing academically at the time were you able to also stay on top of your classes i mean obviously you graduated so i would imagine that you you were doing quite well so <laughs> um yeah not the best so in my freshman year I had a good GPA. When I went back after, you know, I had my company, it was working so much. And where I got my diagnosis was my sophomore year. My grades would go from really good a couple of weeks, as you can imagine, like super motivated, studying a lot and then depressed, not going to class. So overall, I would say it was good average, but then there was one time where I just could not go to class and on my transcript that entire semester had to be um, removed or basically made an exception on my transcript mm -hmm. because my grades were so low due to bipolar disorder. It took me from 2013 to 2019 to officially graduate wow. because of this. So yeah, I did not finish the conventional four years it took me a while because of the academic performance, but I am in grad school now, mm -hmm. but because I was able to explain on my applications 
can you explain why you'd graduate with a 2.3? Okay. Again, yeah, not the greatest, but I passed. <laughs> hey, it works and out in the end. It worked out in the end. I graduated. Um, and in my applications, like on the GRE, I scored two points from perfects. My LSAT, I scored 171. I did good, but my grades suffered because of this. And I was honest in my grad school application. Like, this is what was going on. Um, and kind of like, this is how I'm able to overcome it through medication and therapy. And I've been able to succeed in grad school. So it took time, but it worked out. That's great. And I know in one interview I read um, that you did um, with, I guess, a, a newspaper or a magazine a while ago, you mentioned that you originally wanted to go to school to study to become a psychiatrist. What made you decide to focus on more of a um, legal route instead? Pretty ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, in high school, I loved the brain science, how the brain worked. In high school, I thought there was only two things, though. I thought there was only depression and schizophrenia. I was super naive that there's a whole, whole world besides that. Um, so going into college, I started as a pre-med major. I realized I hated the Krebs cycle, the Calvin cycle, physics, all that. Being a doctor was not for me. And that's okay. Sure. <laughs> I just, I'm just glad I figured that out early on versus when I graduated. Um, so, but my second year, when I went back, I really loved econ, economics, um, business side of things. And I really took off with that. I started my MBA. Um, I got a career in financial services at a very large bank. I love it. Um, but I work in underwriting, super okay. boring, I know, <laughs> but I kind of deal a lot with policy and procedures and I deal with the legal team on how to implement new laws into underwriting guidelines. Again, super boring. I love it, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to switch sides with the table from going from operations to kind of dealing more with the legal side. So I do me, I'm not going to be some, you know, big litigator or anything. I'm going to work in lending law, but I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's what matters. So I'm, I'm glad that you figured out what you wanted to do when you were relatively at a young age. I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with my, uh, you know, my traditional career, my day job career and things like that. So I always think that's awesome when people are able to find out what does and doesn't work for them. And, uh, kind of pursue what their true interests are. So I think that's super cool. Yeah, I think it's important to like do what you want to do and not push through something you dislike just to make others happy. Right. So that's an important thing. Do you have any advice you'd give to a young college student who believes they may be suffering from mental illness? Yeah, so the biggest thing I would like recommend anyone like that college age, that critical time between 18 and 22, where symptoms of um, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety kind of come up is um, trust on how you're feeling. If something feels off or not right, even in that moment, something might be going well, but you're just not feeling right. Seek, don't be afraid to seek psychological services and get advice from a medical provider. Because that's my biggest regret I have is not seeking treatment sooner when I had all these red flags and I was feeling bad or feeling off. Um, definitely don't be afraid to do it. The scariest part is really reaching out, at least in my perspective, that was the hardest part. But mm -hmm. once I did that, my life changed in so many ways. Um, it's not super easy but it got me on the right path to kind of get treatment and become stable again. That's awesome. And I think that reaching out definitely feels scary at first, but then it just becomes like a routine thing that you do and that anxiety and those reservations kind of evaporate. Right. It just takes, it's, that's, it's really is truly the hardest part. If it's a scare, you don't know what's going on necessarily. Again, I thought maybe it was just depression. Mm -hmm. even though a lot of scary things were going on um it it does take 
a lot of courage to do it. Um, I did not have the courage for a long time, but really just don't be afraid. It, they're there to help you and it will work out. It's just taking that first step. Yeah, absolutely. So what, if you don't mind me asking, what was your hospitalization experience like? Did you, do you think that it helped stabilize you? How, how did you feel after you got out? So during that time, to be honest, I don't remember too much of it. I yeah. just remember a little chaotic. Um, it was at a very small regional hospital, obviously in state college, not super big. Um, and it was only for a couple of days. I think it definitely helped because that gave me the diagnosis so I could get treatment and know outpatient wise. It was able to get me in a safe place to kind of reevaluate everything and kind of refocus on, okay, here's the next step moving forward. So I can see that, the, okay, there is a future. It was a good time out from the outside world, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And that's kind of the way that they describe it is that they want it to be like a hiatus from the stresses and um, whatever of daily life. Um, I, I think that's really good that you had a positive experience there and that it helped you. Um, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't help some people. So I, I'm always glad to hear of situations where it did work out and people got those services that they need. So um, very, very, very happy to hear that that happened. Do you have um, a particular achievement that you're super proud of that you were able to accomplish despite mental illness? Yeah, so honestly, super cheesy, but the proudest accomplishment is really being here today. Wow. Um, because I went, again, anyone that goes through bipolar disorder or any kind of mental illness knows it's it's a lifelong thing and it takes time to kind of find a routine, find proper medications to help if that's what's recommended or proper therapy if that's what's recommended. Kind of being here today is like, okay, I was able to get through all these hardships. Still, again, nothing's perfect. Some days are worse than others, but for the most part, I'm within that healthy spectrum range and that you know, I'm not crossing into depression too much or crossing into mania or hypomania too much. Um, things are pretty stable. So I'm happy I'm here today and um, I feel lucky. And I'm also proud of myself for the hard work I do on a daily basis to stick to my routines and um, the boundaries I set for myself. That's so great to have that big picture perspective. That's just awesome. What uh what medications are you on currently? So currently I am on Wellbutrin and Lamictal. Okay. Um, so that's what's worked best for me so far. But what got me in a stable spot for so many years um was Abilify mm -hmm. and Lexapro and Gabapentin. However, um when I started out Billify as a student athlete, they said, uh, this was fact point and it just became generic. So it was getting prescribed a lot. Um, they said, oh, it won't cause weight gain. This is probably the best thing. If you're a student athlete, it doesn't cause sedation. It did all those things, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but at least it got me stable and that was the most important, but it did end my career as a student athlete because uh... yeah, Within, I started that um, spring of 2016, and by one year later, one and a half years later, it was like a 60-pound weight gain mm -hmm. by eating less than what I originally had. Yeah, yeah, it, weight gain is a common side effect of Abilify. With the gabapentin, for sure, and it was a little sedating as well. But that got me stable and I was able to, you know, um, finish, you know, my semester, um, have a family. I got married, um, focused on my career, had very stable income. It gave me a lot. It took away a little part of my life, which was fencing, which all I knew for a long time. But I'm still grateful that I was able to find a medication that worked to give me 
long-term benefits of stability. Um, and I had my first child, obviously I had to go off medication cold turkey because mm -hmm. of that. That was not a pleasant experience, honestly. Yeah. But um, after I had my children, they're like, I was like, I don't want to go on a Delphi again. They're like, well, well, let's try. I had a super understanding provider. They're like, let's try something else. Well, butrin and Lamictal has been a lifesaver for sure. I've had more energy um, in a healthy way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, able to just live quote unquote normal life of just, you know, good days, bad days, go to work and just be generally happy with life as it is. Fantastic. How long would you say you've been stable for? So I would say I just had my daughter um, recently, somewhat recently. Um, pregnancy does affect bipolar disorder symptoms. So especially postpartum and pregnancy-wise, that is something women do face a lot. Um, so after I had my daughter recently, I would say about, oh my gosh, it's so bad, nine months ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so she's eight months. I have three kids, so <laughs> it birthdays kind of get past me a little bit at this point. Um, so eight months, I would say she was born and then I got in medicine almost immediate immediately after because I was symptomatic. Mm -hmm. um, and then it took about a month for everything to kind of kick in. And so far, everything has been good, knock on wood. Um, I've been in that healthy spectrum range of mood. So that's great. Glad to hear that. Um, how, do you think that bipolar disorder potentially impacts like parenting styles or do you have any concerns about it? Do you have anything that has helped balance those commitments with your uh, mental disorder? Yes. So being a parent with bipolar disorder, there's a lot of stigma around it. Um, I had a very close friend, no longer a close friend, um, say I had my son. I was going through a really hard time and she's like, aren't you afraid that you will give it to your children? And that was like the, like, again, that stigma of the genetic factors that go into bipolar disorder or how, if you're so depressed, how are you going to be a good parent? I, these are real, real questions I've been asked. Um, so those are concerns. Yes, the genetic factor, but also, just kind of looking at yourself of, am I going to be a good parent if I am depressed? Am I going to be a good parent if I maybe am manic and staying up all night on a project instead of spending time with them? So those are concerns. But I really think if you're a parent to really focus on keeping yourself healthy, and sometimes we get so drawn into our kids and they are our life. But we also need to focus on taking care of ourselves. Sometimes we forget about ourselves, you know, like, oh, I am a mother, but I'm also Sarah. And I think it's really important. Anyone bipolar disorder, focus on your own personal boundaries because a healthy parent, um, you know, healthy individual means a healthy parent for your kids as well. They need a healthy parent. So really taking that time and focusing on what you need and being in the pregnancy part, so I can speak on the, the woman's side of it, um, being postpartum, <laughs> you don't get sleep with a newborn. I'm just going to say that. That triggers mania. So, and, and when, during the pregnancy part, super depressed, eight, eight, nine months straight, super depressed. And then when you get lack of sleep with a newborn, that does trigger mania. And I had a very supportive partner my husband to really help whenever he could with the newborn in the middle of the night but as a spouse I can see how that's so hard taking night shift most of it um because then he developed men can develop postpartum depression as well so yeah. I kind of saw that on his side so there's a lot of factors that go into mental health and being a parent as well yeah 
definitely sounds like a uh, complicated situation, but I'm glad it sounds like you're making it through it and that you have the support of your partner. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, I would imagine you're very passionate about parenting. Is there anything else that you're passionate about right now? Are you potentially getting back into fencing or, or anything like that? Anything else that you're really looking forward to or that you've got going on right now? Yeah, so I, again, got stable, like, for sure recently. No more kids. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm definitely done. I have three under, three under four. I'm done. But I kind of like, once I got the stability, my career is going in a good spot. I'm in a good spot um, with school. I got a routine down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back into what I love to a point. So I still got a lot of work to do, but I have started getting back into fencing. I recently had my first regional tournament about a month and a half ago. I placed second. So I'm super happy of that because it just, it gives me a good outlet as well. Exercise has always been a good outlet for me. Um, it keeps me moving when I'm depressed and it has a good outlet. Maybe if I'm going into like hypomania where I need an outlet of that energy. It's overall been a healthy source for me and I'm super excited to kind of get back into it. I don't know if I'll ever be on the international level again, but I do have a goal to kind of see how far I can go with it again. That's so cool. Congratulations on getting back into that. I'm so glad that you were able to pick that back up after some time. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited. Again, I love it. I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. All my friends and family have been involved in the sport. Again, it's a small sport, to say the least. Um, we see the same people all the time. When I went back to do my first regional tournament, I saw a bunch of people I've known for like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a great reunion. And it, it's been good for me. It's been really good to have that extra hobby for myself outside of, you know, the normal day-to-day -day obligations that we have. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this as we're kind of winding down here. I, I just wanted to ask you, what are your overall impressions of Penn State? Because when, when I went there, I was in kind of a similar situation to you. Um, I was starting to really experience bad depressive symptoms and by the end of my uh, final semester at Penn State, I actually graduated early, um, but I, um, I was experiencing pretty bad hypomania to the point that it spiraled completely out of control just a couple of weeks after I graduated. And when I think back to my time at Penn State, I think back to the fact that it was such a huge school and I feel like I kind of slipped between the cracks for so long with my symptoms and with my mental health. And I often wonder if going to a smaller university would have maybe made those symptoms easier to have been caught earlier. Um, and then of course, the, with the social scene being such a party scene and things like that, that definitely didn't help my mental health at all. Um, those are my thoughts on it. I was just curious what your takeaways were. Yeah, I'm so sorry, like, you felt that way. That's pretty a common occurrence that I've heard from others that went there as well, um, that they just kind of felt between, like, fell between the cracks. You have 44 or 45 when I went, thousand undergrad students, at least mm -hmm. when I was there. I think it's roughly about the same, obviously, each year. It's a lot. And it can be so overwhelming. And it is a very, very part, like hard party scene. Again, anyone, you do you, that's fine. Um, and I think, again, it's coming back to that, what is normal, what isn't, um, everything kind of being on level 10, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just super energetic. Everyone's, you know, like happy, partying, doing their thing. I think a smaller university, it's a lot easier to see those abnormal, again, bipolar disorder was explained to me as a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, once you cross into that unhealthy, disruptive side, either side, that's when you know you have a problem, quote unquote. Um, 
it's a lot easier in a smaller setting to see when someone has maybe crossed into that um, outside range of the spectrum, such as staying up for nine days straight. <laughs> yeah. that, that would be a lot more seen versus a class of 800 students or you know, having a large group of friends, maybe not necessarily seeing that every day. Yeah. So I do think a smaller university is a lot easier to kind of see that. And for instance, my husband, um, just to kind of put him in there, um, he, he went to a very small school, very small community college um, for most of his undergrad. He's finishing up um, through a larger un university online. But when he was at the smaller school, again, he, he deals with depression as well. And it was seen by teachers that like reached out like, hey, I noticed this or this, um, just letting you know these resources. So in a smaller setting, I do think it's a lot easier for yourself, your friends and um, faculty to kind of recognize those abnormal uh, psychological symptoms too. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any questions for me about anything or would you like to plug any projects that you're working on or anything like that before we wrap up the show? Yeah, if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, um, it's at it's sfelix21. Um, but yeah, I just want to again say anyone who's dealing with bipolar disorder to like really know um, you are a valuable person. You, you know, it is treatable and, you know, we will get better. <laughs> and uh, for you though, I do have a question, uh, you know, about Penn State. Yeah. Um, also, what's in that like large campus and your experience with CAPS um, directly? So with CAPS, what do you think they could do to kind of improve their structure for uh, students in the future um, um, that may be dealing with like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, and anything like that? That's such a good question. I mean, I graduated from Penn State going on 10 years ago, so I'm not sure how much it's changed since then. But my impressions when I personally was working with the CAPS services back in like 2012 or 2013, um, I think that they need to have actual like license, like fully licensed therapists and counselors working there. I think working with graduate students for someone who has a severe mental illness or a serious mental illness, I, I don't think that they're the best resources um, just because they don't have the training yet. Um, I, I did not like that when I met with my counselor for that handful of times, I didn't like that the sessions were video recorded. It made me uncomfortable. So yeah. that, that's something that um, I think could be changed if it hasn't been changed already. And then like you were saying, they just simply need more people working there so they can more promptly respond to students who could potentially be in crisis situations uh, like the one you were in. So I guess better staffing, um, more experienced staff. Um, I Yeah, those are the two things that really come to mind for me. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And honestly, if I was ever videotaped in a therapy session, that would give me so much anxiety. I don't know, just having that there, I would not like that either. Yeah, it um, was ridiculous. And I mean, I was involved with a lot of extracurricular stuff at Penn State as well. I can't get into the specifics of it, but um, I, I was involved in a lot of extracurricular stuff that was like, you know, had like scholarship contingency aspects to it and stuff and I could not I did not feel I could be completely transparent with the counselor because I didn't know if that information would somehow get back to them or what because a lot of what I had going on at that time was also like illegal drug activity and stuff like that so you can't yeah. just openly talk about that with somebody um who like you, you know you're on video it's it doesn't feel private it doesn't feel like a confidential session or things like that and those aspects of my life that were present at that time 
were directly relevant to what I had going on with the exacerbation of my bipolar symptoms and things like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I am so sorry that happened because yeah, that would be such an uncomfortable situation. And I completely like get that because I was also kind of hesitant even reaching out to the university through my, you know, student athlete, um, it's called student athlete insurance. I don't know exactly what it's called because I was worried it was going to get back to like my coaches and mm-hmm. they would not start me because of that. And yeah, having a therapy session videotape, that would feel like a disposition <laughs> more than like, yeah, yeah, like an actual therapy session. Yeah. And it is, yeah. And it, yeah, that would, that would just stress me out. I had someone working there too in couch, just like as a receptionist. Um, but they heard that each, we only had two, I don't know if it was still the same for you, two medical providers, one psych- psychiatrist and one nurse practitioner for everybody. And they said they had about four to 5,000 patients for each of those providers. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable in any no. means. But I did hear that the class gifts um, for 2016 and 2020 donated more money to CAP services so that they can maybe get more hopefully trained, um, you know, counselors and providers. So I really hope it has improved because it's, it, it, in theory, is such a great resource. But like you said, and, you know, in my experience too, it was not perfect. Yeah. And I mean, if there's like a single population that could really use, not the only population, but one of the populations that could really, really use access to mental health services, I think it is college students who are, you know, 17 to 19 years old. They've got, um, you know, that's like the prime time for when things like schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, et cetera, start to become really prevalent for, for many people. And like, I mean, at a university with the amount of resources that Penn State has and things like that, I just can't see why there wouldn't be better services offered. Right. Like two providers for 8,000 kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a lot. And yeah. yeah, And like you said, that is the prime time because it's a whole new world. You're kind of that should, or most of the time is the first time someone is living on their own for the first time, dealing with very stressful, you know, school, mostly full-time, most of the students are full-time. It's stressful as it is. And like I said, stress and major life changes for me. And I know what it is for a lot of people are major triggers for episodes. And that's why a lot of these symptoms kind of develop in that time range mm-hmm. or that age range. So yeah, I agree, Penn State. I hope they really improved that theory mm-hmm. because again it's a great theory and it's a great resource but it needs more funding and more attention for sure yeah couldn't have said it better myself all right well um i will put your social media information into the episode description so people can find you if they'd like to keep up with um you know what you've been up to lately And I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on today. I I really appreciated it. And I think this was a great conversation. No, no, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I know, again, sorry. (laughs) Life has been a little crazy, but this was a great conversation. I love talking to a fellow Penn Stater. And, you know, thank you so much for doing this. It's such an important thing for not only people with bipolar disorder, but for maybe family, friends, or just the general population to like hear, um, you know, what this individual group of people go through and kind of get more understanding. I think it's important for people to understand what other human beings are going through, um, just so we can connect more with others and also be more of a listening ear. Definitely. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan, and our guest today was Sarah Felix. I will post Sarah's social media info in the episode description if you'd like to connect with her.
Bipolar Recorder can be found on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder, and I can be found on Twitter at HHKeegan. Feel free to follow or reach out on there if you'd like. Also, if you've been enjoying the show so far, be sure to tell your friends about it. Maybe even consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. These are quick ways to help bring more attention to the show and get the word out about mental health. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to take your meds. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.